Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. Thanks for listening. My name is Nicholas Claude. My guest this week is Professor Ruth Hall. Ruth is based at PLAS, which is the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies at the University of the Western Cape, outside Cape Town. She is one of South Africa's leading experts on land redistribution and tenure in the country, and all three of her postgraduate degrees have focused on the land question in South Africa in one form or another. With land suddenly in the spotlight and a general election around the corner in 2019, I thought it would be interesting to get some perspective on the land debate in general. While a lot of discussion is taking place on the need to change the South African constitution in order to move the land question forward, uh, Ruth feels that it's been mainly a lack of political will from the ANC that has stalled the process, and we go a little bit into that. She also feels that land redistribution efforts so far have focused more on giving farms to a politically connected urban elite and not to the poorest of the poor. In our discussion, we touch on the positions of both urban and rural land in the debate, and Ruth lays out what she feels a successful land reform process or program might look like, or at least goes through some of the stages that should be gone through in order for proper restitution and redistribution and tenure as well to to take place. Please now enjoy my discussion with uh, Ruth Hall. So, uh, Ruth, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. You have been running around with some PhD students from how many countries did you say? I think um, five or six. Okay. Are they from like all around the world or from Africa? Uh, we're running a, pro- a PhD program. Uh, we have masters and PhD students from across Africa, um, mostly southern Af- and east Africa. Um, okay. And we're we're dealing with theory. We're mm. asking questions about um, how is rural Africa changing, and here we have to remember that South Africa might be seen as an extreme version of land dispossession due to colonialism and apartheid. Mm. But we're not entirely exceptional. Yes. And we should actually also be learning from mm. and engaging with people from elsewhere in the region. I want to get on to that a little bit later on. Let's just start uh, with you. Um, Where are you from? Um, I'm not actually sure. Uh, (laughs) And the reason is (laughs) I used to think that I came from a town called Grahamstown. But Mm -hmm. most people call it Ichini. And uh, I was on my way to this town recently when I saw the headline news, which is that it's been renamed. Uh, So the town that I'm from is called Makanda. Okay. And named after Chief Makanda, who fought in the frontier wars in the Eastern Cape, who was imprisoned on Robben Island and died swimming to shore. So um, oh, we wow. are, I'm, I'm from a place of colonialism and attempts at decolonization. And I think that that has a lot to do with my work. Hmm. Um, because you're uh, originally, as I understand it, your, your um, PhD is in politics. And here you are at PLAS, which is, I must just, exp- or maybe you can explain a little bit about the um, the institute, or do we call it an institute, hmm. for poverty, land, and agrarian studies. I'm intrigued by that link between poverty and land, of course, which is hmm. kind of in the context in which we're having these discussions at the moment. How did you, what was your PhD um, thesis on? Well, firstly, I need to say, 
it was only after many years that I realized that there was a connection between how I grew up and why I work on land. Mm. So uh, as a child, um, my family was politically active and my mother worked with um, uh, a non-governmental organization that was supporting people who were resisting forced removals in the Eastern Cape. So I spent a quite a lot of my okay. childhood, actually, on field trips in so rural areas. So you were exposed areas. to this whole issue many, and, many years ago. And engaging with, um, even as a child, understanding that people were fighting to defend their land. Um, and so for me, it was natural being quite political, politically interested that, uh, of course, what does democracy and liberation mean? It means that we must change how ha land is held. And so um, I did an honors and a master's and a PhD thesis, three theses on land reform. And what I was really interested in is to really think about, you know, here's the ANC that was founded in 1912, yep. the year before the 1913 Natives Land Act, and very much because of it. Uh, and this was a group of, uh, in relative terms, a black middle class intelligentsia, yeah. the, the professional class, a professional class, people who'd been um, mission educated, mm. the pastors and so on. An elite, I suppose you could call them in that a context. A relative elite, a relative elite saying that uh, we want pr private property rights for blacks. Hmm. Um, and I think that there's been this evolution through the 20th century where a lot of ANC thinking has been about how the land question is about how to build a black middle class on the land. Uh, through but ownership there is, of the land. But there is a competing strand of thinking within the ANC and the alliance, which is how to promote access to land for the very poor, including nationalization of not only the land, but the mines and the banks. So there are these competing strands of thought within the ANC that we see through the 20th century, and particularly with the growth and influence of the, of the Communist Party in the late 1960s, we see this nationalization narrative taking root. And by the late 1980s, when the ANC got into negotiations, it abandoned this idea of nationalization of land. But I think that the question that that we still need to ask, and which I think often is the ignored question, is really what should the outcome of a land reform process look like? Yeah. What would be a successful story? Um, who would be getting the land? On what terms would they be getting it? Are they getting big farms? Are they getting small holdings? Is it an elite? Is it the poor? And we need to have a very clear class agenda and clarify what the purpose of this uh, initiative is. My feeling about the current debate, um, and particularly the parliamentary hearings, the Constitutional Review Committee is having hearings across the country yes. asking people should the Constitution be changed. I think they're asking the wrong question to the wrong people. They should be asking the state, why have you not used the Constitution? Mm. Uh, and of course, what we're seeing is an outpouring across the country of black people who are poor and who are angry and who feel let down by the state. And mm. they say, yes, change the constitution because they feel that that, that, is, the way that, that is the way forward. But actually what I think they're answering is a different question. I think the question that many people are answering is, do you want land? Mm. Do you want the state to give you land? Do you think that uh, the current dispensation where 35,000 commercial farmers own 67% of the land, do you think that that's fair and right? Mm. No, 
doesn't Absolutely look, doesn't not. look good. No. Um, and so something new must be created. Mm. And I think that uh, as a society, I think that it's quite... On the one hand, I feel worried that we're getting into a pattern of constitution blaming for and scapegoating for what have been political failures. But I think that it's quite hopeful, on the other hand, because it's forcing us as a society to have hard conversations yeah. about questions of inequality and class. Because um, you did uh, write so recently, and I just mentioned this before we were talking, that you know in February 2017 you, you, you are saying... You know, there's a crisis and we're in a state of flux when it comes to the whole issue of land reform or land in general. And now in April 2018, it seems we're in a in a better place because what well, just purely because we are the, the country as a whole beyond just um, the parliament or just beyond the political parties is having a discussion about land or why are you hopeful or why do you say that we are in a in a better place now than we were perhaps just over a year ago? Well, I think that firstly, um, the, the ruling party has been forced into a corner and has been forced by the EFF to acknowledge that the land issue is important. And it's important in two different meanings. And the first is a material question, which is about who owns the assets and the material wealth of this country. And the truth is a very small number of individuals and corporations own the wealth of this country. Hmm. Uh, but there's a symbolic question, and I think that in the in what we've seen over the past few months, the symbolic question is almost more uh, significant and salient, which is that people are saying white people should not benefit again from having got land cheaply and gotten, uh, gotten apartheid-era subsidies. They must not benefit again. And so I think that uh, we, we're dealing with the land issue on both material and a symbolic uh, mm. level. I think that the reason why uh, this is a good moment is that uh, the ANC, which historically has, has been very urban biased and has not addressed land issues and has also always thought about land issues as an agrarian as issue. As agricultural or rural land, yeah, not urban land. Is lands. now being forced to think about land across rural and urban spaces. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, South Africa is more than 60% urbanized, about 62%, I think, urbanized. And what we've seen in the past few months have been land occupations in urban areas mm. where people are voting with their feet. And often these are organized occupations. Sometimes they're politically organized. Uh, and people are occupying land and saying, we don't want to be sent out onto the periphery of the city. We want to be part of the mainstream of yep. the economy. Yep. But we are not seeing similar examples in rural areas. We're not seeing mass land occupations of commercial farms. So I think that the politics around the land issue is going to play out very much in the urban space. And that's why it's going to be so volatile in the run-up to the 20. 2019 elections, where our growing urban electorate and our growing young urban electorate might, for the first time, actually be deciding who to vote for based on the land issue, whereas the land issue was never an electoral question no. in the past. Yeah. Um, you, you, I think it was somewhere I read that you said um, up until you know where we are now, land reform in this country had been. Um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, well, had been, oh man, I'm, I'm just, 
has has involved sort of state control, neglect, and elite capture. Mm. Um, so, how how has that been allowed to? How did how did that happen? So I think that we've had three big phases of land reform in South Africa. And the Mandela era, it was uh, the Rainbow Nation, it was the RDP, and land reform was about giving small, modest amounts of money to poor people to get a little bit of land. It didn't work well because people were forced to put their land, their, their subsidies together and buy big commercial farms, and then they weren't supported. And in the Mbeki era, and consistent with wider political changes under Gear, the whole idea about um, building a black bourgeoisie, uh, we saw under the Mbeki era this shift towards uh, black commercial farmers as being the priority object of land reform. And the Zuma era, and I can't emphasize this enough, I mean, essentially, the Zuma era has seen the dismantling of the land reform program. Uh, the rate of transferring land has diminished almost to zero. Hmm. Um, and what we've seen is what, what land is being redistributed has been captured by a very thin stratum of mostly urban businessmen who are politically connected plus some big agribusinesses, mostly white or foreign-owned, who are cashing in. So I think that the big question that we should be asking now is not merely how to get more land or how to do this faster, but how to do something entirely different. And I think that we need a different kind of land reform, and we need to be debating as a society. If we think that land reform can reduce poverty, then who should benefit? Should it be the poor? Section 25.5 of our constitution says that there must be citizens must gain access to land on an equitable basis. On an equitable basis implies that those who have greatest need should get priority. So perhaps what we should be doing is instead of giving large commercial farms to a very small number of politically connected elites and using only 0.4% of the national budget, perhaps we should be targeting land where people are really desperate for it. And I think that among the key categories of people who could be taking priority would include farm workers and former farm workers who've been evicted from farms. Across the country, we see informal settlements growing around the rural towns because large numbers of people have been expelled from the farms. These are people whose livelihoods and who for generations have been connected with farming, and they now have access to a shack in a squatter settlement. So how can land reform be part of a solution? We need to think much more imaginatively. Mm. I think that also we need to think across a spectrum, which is from the small to the medium and the large scale, because I think politically uh, our ruling party will never accept an exclusively pro-poor land reform program. There is a demand by accumulating business people for access to commercial farms, mm. and so we probably need to have a spectrum. Similarly, we probably need to have a spectrum of compensation. More than half of commercial farms have been transacted since 1994. Uh, what does so that mean, transacted? Sold, bought and sold? Bought and sold. Right. So uh, there is a question, there's an open question. Should uh, the compensation regime pay people or not pay people across the board? Or should we treat different people in different circumstances differently? I'm raising that as a question because I'm one of, I think, not very many people who think, firstly, that land reform it must happen, 
uh, it must happen in a much more significant and dramatic way and that to do so doesn't require changing the constitution. Hmm. Uh, so some people equate the constitution with the failures of the state over the past 22 years. And I think that the constitution has not been a failing. I think it has it's been our state. Or the political will, you mean, then, in that, in that, st- in that sense. Um, you, you speak about, um, well, there's three terms that have, that have uh, cropped up, and I, I actually see it's funnily enough written on, your, on a piece of paper on the wall behind me behind you, uh, redistribution, restitution, and tenure reform as sort of three kinds of strands within the broader land reform debate, if that's the correct way to look at it. Could you just take us through those three and why they are different and why they need to be sort of together? So in the... At the moment of political transition in South Africa, many black people thought the end of apartheid means we can all get access to land again. Uh, And so redistribution of land was seen as one of the pivotal elements of a post-apartheid era dispensation. And redistribution means that white-owned land can be bought or expropriated or acquired by some means by the state and given to people. Um, and as, But at the same time, a number of people said, we don't want just general access to land, we just want to return to the land that we've been dispossessed of, so we yes. want to go back to our own land. And so there was a call by a specific group of people for restitution, to say, we want to go back to the land that we lost. And that's different from redistribution. Under restitution, you have to prove that you were dispossessed. Redistribution, there's no need to prove. Mm. There's no need to prove historical um, dispossession. And then there's the question of tenure reform. And let's be clear, we have a system of private property ownership in South Africa that works for the minority. So over 60% of South Africans have no recorded or documented rights to property. Hmm. So we have a, a deeds registry system, a cadastral system, etc., that works for people who own private property, people who own a buy. house, uh, yeah. people who own a house in town or a commercial farm. Hmm. But in fact, most people occupy informal settlements or backyard shacks or they live on commercial farms or they live in communal areas. This is the majority of our population don't have recorded rights. And so part of our land reform is actually saying, and this is what I think was very eloquently put in the high-level panel chaired by former President Jalama Motlante, is to say that everyone in the country should have recognized rights to the land that they occupy and use, Mm. including the very poor, including people who do not have private ownership, and that people should have an opportunity even to have a record of the of the land that they occupy mm. and should not be arbitrarily evicted. So we need to actually rethink our property system. It's not just about redistributing. It's also about changing the imbalance between those who own property, including the state. And remember, the state owns a lot of property. A lot of the property on which black and poor people are being evicted is actually state-owned property Hmm. in which chiefs often control a lot of the land and people are being evicted and removed from that land without compensation. Hmm. So we need to have a much more sophisticated thinking. Yes. Uh Okay. I want to discuss um, traditional authorities and the role of traditional authorities, particularly in the 
context of the Ingonyama Trust discussion. But um, just in terms of, well, I mean, this you know, it just flies at me now, these thoughts, just driving out here from Cape Town to the, the University of the Western Cape where we are sitting, you just go through past kilometers and kilometers of, of there are shacks. I mean, you can see that some there's been some kind of RDP or low-cost, low-income mm. government mm. houses being mm. built as well, but there are vast acres of shacks. Now, how do you, how do, how do you actually formalize that into something that's livable and possible for human consumption? Well, firstly, I think that there are two different questions. The one is, how can people get out of shacks and into better located land in the inner city? And I think that that's a huge question for all of our metros in South Africa. The, the land the breaking question, down of the apartheid geography. Yeah, so we need to break down apartheid geography both within the cities and in the countryside. So building... Uh, RDP matchbox houses further and further out on the periphery is not doing that. And what people are wanting, in fact, a lot of people are selling up very cheaply their RDP houses on the urban periphery in order to move into backyard shacks closer to where there are economic opportunities. So the answer surely has to be we have to identify the well-located land within the city. Uh, we have groups like Ndifuna Okwazi and Reclaim the City in, in Cape Town. There are similar groups in Cape Johannesburg. Uh, who, who are saying, let's identify the well-located land that can be used for denser settlement. Maybe we have to give up some golf courses. Maybe there's some parastatal land. Mm. There's land held by Transnet and Donnell and so on. And maybe we should be densifying and bringing poor people closer into the city. But I want to raise a similar question for the rural areas, which is that a lot of people who want land in the rural areas... They don't want uh, a farm far away from any economic opportunities. And in fact, the big demand, as far as I see it, and from the surveys I've seen, uh, is from farm workers who want to have land and jobs. Because increasingly, farm jobs are seasonal. Yes. And people want to have a small holding, mm. and they want to have the possibility of a wage income. So I think we need to break apart these these uh, polarities and dualities of like either you're in the suburb or the township, or either you're a farm worker or you're a farmer. We need to start to blur these lines, and mm. that means overcoming spatial apartheid planning in both urban and rural areas. Just to touch on farm labor now for a moment, um, it was, I think, at the beginning of this year that the minimum wage for farm workers was raised to 3,100-odd kind of rand or something like that, which is pretty pathetic in itself. But um, I read a, an ILO, International Labor Organization, report, I forget what it was called, where they say like up until 2015, 65% of farm workers were only earning 1,600 uh, rand a month. So in the context of that economy, that's like quite a massive leap. But um, I'm just uh, wanting to get a just a picture of the privations of the farm laborers' existence because it 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 does seem to be pretty grim uh, it's seasonal it's insecure it's highly demanding and it's very poorly paid 
how do we can we still have a functioning agricultural economy if we take care of farm labor in a, a meaningful and proper way there's one view which is that um, the only way that commercial farms can stay afloat is to continue exploiting labor and uh, there's a contrary view which is that actually um, a number of commercial farms that only can stay afloat by exploiting labor should be allowed to go under uh, there was a very significant report uh, conducted for the Department of Labor in 2014, I believe it was. And what it showed was that even with a 50% increase in the minimum wage for farm workers, they would be unable to provide their families with adequate food. So we have essentially farm workers are the biggest category of the working poor. People who have minimum oh, wages, I was wondering that. but what actually, yeah. but actually fall under the poverty yeah. datum yeah. line and are unable to feed their families mm. adequately mm. to prevent, for instance, stunting of children and malnourishment. So we have a structural problem, and uh, and I think that what our government hasn't done adequately is listened to farm workers, because uh, a lot of government thinking is about, on the one hand having a, a, a minimum wage for farm workers and, on the other hand, a land reform program that tends to benefit the wealthy and the urban, but not putting the two together. And what I think the farm workers have been asking for for years in numerous memoranda and charters and letters and so on is farm workers have been saying, we want access to land for ourselves and we want to be farm workers. Um, and what we've seen over, you know, in the first 10 years of democracy, nearly a million people were forcibly removed from farms. That means that more black people have been forced off the land in the first 10 years of democracy than got access to it via land reform. So in fact, we're moving backwards. What we're seeing is fewer black people have access to land, and the people who are getting access to land are a relative elite, and those who are losing it are very, very poor and are ending up in squatter settlements around towns. So I think, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity here. This sounds all very depressing, but mm. there's a lot of opportunity here to entirely rethink what and who land reform is for. Mm. I think that the Constitutional Review Committee process, uh, as I say, is is asking a separate question, which is, should we blame the Constitution? I think that the question rather should be, how can we hold the state accountable to give people access to land on an equitable basis and to prioritize the interests of people who are in most need? So mm. we could actually envisage an alternative kind of land reform process, which democratizes down to the local level, down to district municipalities, where people say, we need land, and we want land just for residential purposes or a, f a house and a little bit to farm hmm. or whatever it is. I've actually done surveys in rural areas where rural people say what they want. And what's very consistent is that around 85 to 90% of people will say they want a hectare or less, but it must be well located. And I think hmm. that we're failing to address that demand. Uh, we are doing an elitist kind of land reform program that gives large commercial farms to a very small number of people who typically get into massive debt 
uh, and ignores mm. the majority demand. Um, you have been doing now more recently work in other African countries. Um, I, I've, I read a reference to a five-country study, um, mm. and then there was a 14-country study. Um, could you, because you know, as we as we as you said at the beginning, it's it's I suppose we do have um, a unique or different situation compared to many other countries, um, just based on that sort of legalized forced removals that we saw both, well, from the time of the 1913 Land Act to the forced removals. I mean, even as you say, in your lifetime now, when you were a child, those removals were going on. So it's it's still something very much within our recent past, people being moved from a particular place to another place. Um, what what are you looking at in in other parts of Africa that will that could inform us, or what are you trying to learn from those African experiences that hopefully can inform our, our, our future progress here? It's a great question. Um, you know, across many African countries for decades, governments have been hoping that if they liberalized their economies, investors would arrive and there would be uh, agricultural commercialization. And it didn't happen. Uh, and from about 10 years ago, 2007, 2008, a combination of, uh, of factors led to a lot of global investors starting to look to African land as a new investment frontier. So a lot of financial investors, hedge funds, pension funds. Mm. We started to see China and India and Brazil starting to look to African farmland. There were projections of global food insecurity, so a lot of companies are just wanting to produce food in Africa to export to to growing populations in South Korea or in Saudi Arabia yeah, and Dubai, so on. Dubai, I think I heard stories and of buying land in all yes, parts of Africa. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so some people call that uh, a global process of land grabbing, that there's been this corporate new corporate drive for African farmland. And I started working on this about 10 years ago. And uh, we've done research across many different African countries. And what we find is... One of the crucial elements is that investors are, are getting land from governments, governments that nationalized land after independence. So in the process of decolonization, a lot of African governments nationalized the land. With a view to giving it back to the people? But people, people already hold the land under customary forms of tenure, but when investors arrive, governments and also sometimes traditional authorities and chiefs are actually selling off communities' lands over their heads. And in fact, South Africa is not so unique because we're seeing the same thing happening here. If we look in the northwest and Limpopo, in the platinum belt, we'll see that there are corrupt deals between state authorities, traditional leaders, and mining companies that are transacting community land, and the communities are not getting, getting any, any royalties from that from that uh, from those deals mm. and they're being dispossessed in the process mm. we see the same kind of controversies on the wild coast where that Kolobeni yeah, right. community is trying to resist being forcibly removed mm. so in fact and people are dying actually there yeah. you know many parts of Africa are experiencing what South Africa experienced under colonialism and apartheid but in South Africa the dispossession is continuing 
So we need to look to the rest of Africa and understand that we're not so special, but that the dispossession has advanced in South Africa to a huge degree. But even those tiny pockets of land that black people still hold and control in the ex-Bantustans, the former homelands of South Africa, even there, both for mining, for commercial farming and tourism, and tourism purposes, people are being subject to forced dispossession without compensation. Mm. So I think that we need to really unravel this question and to ask, uh, I think, a, a basic question, which is, should all South Africans have some kind of property rights? And should those be entrenched? And should people have a right to say no to being dispossessed from the land if they hold the land only for their own survival? Um, and the difficulty here is that there is a populist narrative which says, no, there must be nationalization of land. But I think that we need to ask what kind of state we have and do we trust the state to always to, act in the interests mm, of the poor? Mm. Um, we've spoken now of our traditional authorities and I did mention the Ngunyama Trust and I'm just wondering where you... I mean, obviously we've mentioned that you know a very small minority of white farmers are owners of more than 60%, a little more than 60% of the commercial agricultural land in this country. Is that our, our correct understanding? But there is also traditional land where people are meant to have access to some form of relationship to that, that land, to be able to use the land, but they don't have ownership of the land. How do we sort of balance that there's certain there's worlds colliding here now aren't there and how do you how do we keep everyone happy if it's possible in that context i mean you know there's still a lot of respect for chiefs and the traditional authorities in many parts of the country and that's cool I, i'm i'm perhaps not one of those people but um i mean can we adapt uh, is the solution to dismantle the tribal structures of the country and, and, and put the land into the hands of the state that will then be sold to people or given to people? Or how, does, how, how can that work? I think that a starting point uh, across any situation in South Africa is that if, you're, if you are occupying land as a family openly, that, that is a, you actually have a property right and that the law should recognize that property right, regardless of whether you are in an informal settlement, living in a small home as a farm worker, or whether you're in a communal area, in an area where there's uh, jurisdiction by a traditional authority. And so the idea uh, of the Motlante panel was to say, let us vest the rights at the level of the occupiers rather than the traditional councils. The traditional councils have a governance role, but actually the people who occupy should be recognized as the de facto owners. Mm. And we can do that. Um, and in fact, we can have a system of even providing land records where people can provide, you know, get a some kind of documentation to show that they are the de facto owners of the land that they occupy and use. So instead of waiting for the state to allocate private title, we can have a bottom-up proce mm. process. And I think that the reason why this has become so controversial, particularly with the Ingonyama Trust, 
is Ingonyama is different from the rest of the country because uh, the whole of what was then the KwaZulu homeland was transferred in private ownership to the Ingonyama Trust three days before the uh, first democratic elections in 1994. Hmm. Uh, it was a deal to secure the participation of the, of the, Ingo- uh, of the Freedom of Party the yeah. and, to, and to deal with the fact that there was a low-level civil war underway. So the, the, the issue there is that actually the land is not owned by the state, it's owned by the trust and the only trustee is, is the king. Um, and the king and the trust are now starting to charge people rent to continue to occupy the land on which they already live and which they are the actual owners of. So um, I think these are these are questions that South Africans are going to have to confront. And there's a, there's a danger that there's this discourse that the state or the ANC wants to take the land away from the Zulus, whereas actually what the, what the Motlante panel was proposing was that the people who live there, the Zulu people in KZN, should be, be recognized as the owners of their own land hmm. and not have to pay rent to a traditional authority. Um, you've mentioned the World Bank in some of the articles or interviews that I've, I've read, and I'm just wondering, I don't really have a clear idea of what the role of the World Bank is in formulating policy land reform policy in this country. Can, can you give us some idea of, of where the World Bank does fit into all of this? The World Bank has been very influential in shaping South Africa's land reform program. Very influential, even though we have never taken a loan from but the this, World Bank. Yeah. Uh, so it, there hasn't been con- policy conditionality, but uh, the ANC, both in the run-up to the first elections and the ANC in government, has chosen to take... Uh, key elements of World Bank advice on board. And there are two big stories here. And the one is that the World Bank said, you have been subsidizing white commercial farmers. It's unaffordable. You're basically bankrupt. Stop subsidizing commercial farming. And open up your markets to international trade. Uh, Stop protecting your markets. So do away with all the marketing boards that we used to have the maize board, the dairy mm. board, the board for everything, uh, do away with all the export the subsidies, the co-ops, everything disappeared. And that's what happened in the late 1980s and into the mid-1990s. So the ANC actually continued the National Party's program of dismantling the support for commercial farming. At the same time, the World Bank said as well as opening up your markets and deregulating your farming, you should also have a land reform program that's pro-poor, but it should be based on the market, so you should buy farms on the market. And the ANC adopted this approach, even though it's not in our constitution. The constitution doesn't say there must be a willing buyer, willing seller approach. In fact, the constitution Hmm. says expropriate in the interests of land reform, and the ANC has chosen not to do so. So the ANC has, on the one hand, taken away all the mechanisms of support that used to exist to support white commercial farmers. So those systems are not present to support new black farmers. Hmm. At the same time, we have a very slow and market-dependent kind of land reform process. So I would say the World Bank, even though we weren't obliged to abide by 
their policy advice, the World Bank has been very influential in how we approach both land and agricultural policy in South Africa. Where to from now? As you say, we have an election next year, 2019, and you kind of predicting that land is now going to be one of the main, if not the main issue uh, around the election. So how do you see the next... Um, year or so and into the sort of short term i mean what do you hope what do you hope can happen what, what do you think is achievable um in in the given the, the, the kind of real complexity and the fact that you know you suggesting that we, we need a, a complete rethink in this country just on the basic sort of fundamentals of what we mean by land reform and ran, land distribution do, do we have the time and do we have the actual capacity to to achieve anything that's going to be meaningful to the majority of the population in the short to medium term? So I think that there are a few things that can be got right. Uh, number one, we need a new expropriation bill. The state needs to clarify its powers of expropriation, not because that's the only way of doing land reform, but because it's one. And particularly where people are claiming back their own land, the state needs to be able to expropriate. Politically, the ANC needs to show that it's willing to expropriate without compensation in some cases and with compensation in others. So it needs to clarify that. Everyone needs to know what the answer is to that question. Hmm. So we need a new expropriation bill. There's a second suggestion, which is that we should have a redistribution bill, a bill that clarifies what are the rights of citizens to go to the state and say, we want and need land. Will you hear us? And will you be transparent and accountable in how you respond to different interests? So that there should not be elite capture. We need such... Uh, clarification. Thirdly, uh, there's a, uh, a proposal for a, a land records bill, which um, which would provide the opportunity for the majority of South Africans who don't have any kind of titled or recorded land rights to record what land they occupy and how. Fourthly, I think that uh, we need some test cases and. Uh, in South Africa, it's it's inevitable that this is going to be quite a judicially mediated process, mm -hmm. and we're likely to see constitutional Litigation. court battles. We're likely to see that. But fifthly, I think that what we're starting to see on the ground in both rural and urban areas is people organizing and building some citizen sort of presence from below and putting pressure on government. So while I would say that the ANC over the past 22 years since the Constitution was adopted could have done a lot more on land reform. Um, and it has now been pushed into this corner by being challenged by the political, from the left, by a, 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 a rival political party. I think that the ANC is not going to go back to where it was. I think that the ANC is going to be forced to take this challenge on. Hmm. Um, and I think that... Uh, a key question is actually a question about class. So I think that much more important and decisive and interesting than the question of how to get the land is the question of who's it going to be for. Ruth, I know you've got a dash to another meeting about half an hour ago, so thanks very much for your time. It's been fascinating. Thank you.
Thanks again for listening. I hope you found the discussion interesting. Certainly a number of issues uh, being raised there that perhaps haven't been considered. Again, I was a little pressed for time here, so we did try and cover as much ground as possible, if you'll excuse the pun. To get more information on the work of PLAS, then you can check out the website PLAS, that's P-L-A-A-S dot org dot Z-A. Please subscribe to Voices from SA and Apple Podcasts, where you can leave a rating or comment. The ratings are important for the pod to reach a wider audience. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and I would appreciate your feedback or suggestions for future interviews. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude.